Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On today's episode, we have Lauren. Hello. And Jen. Hey. Today we'll be talking about space, the final frontier, and a few things that are happening on the edge, like zombie comets, crinkle-cut ships and radiation, observatories in the desert, and what happens when rockets go bad. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is not really a city, but a desert. And that's because it's very hard to do astronomy in a city, what with all the light pollution. But in the Atacama Desert in Chile, uh, they have some of the world's highest concentration of radio and visual observatories. There are at least probably about six or seven uh, major observatories in the Atacama Desert, and it's the place to be. Why do you ask? Well, it's about a thousand meters above sea level, never gets rain, so therefore no clouds, and is very, very dry, which means there's very little moisture disturbance in the air, all making it perfect as an observatory location. A lot of big organizations, such as the European Space Agency and European Southern Observatories, have big ones there, as does Japan, the United States, even Australia has some presence there occasionally. And it is a very famous place for observatory work, but also solar car racing, surprisingly enough. And uh, there's also been a couple of mysterious things happening there, what with uh, the connection with space and space observation. People reckon or thought there was an alien from the Atacama Desert, and you may have seen this little hoax going around after a while. So what actually happened there, Jen? Uh, well, actually, it was not an alien, but it did look pretty freaky. It was just a a human fetus that was fossilised or preserved in some pretty weird way. And it looked like one of those uh, large-headed aliens in this small, very small size. And it was a very interesting part of biology and, uh, I guess, archaeology when you think about it. Uh, But no, sadly, no actual aliens there, just observatories. So that's our City of Science for this week, the Atacama Desert in Chile. So keeping in the uh, observatory theme, when we're talking about some more observatories closer to home, well, kind of closer to home, the Square Kilometre Array is a massive scientific undertaking which will involve a radio telescope, being built that spans from South Africa all the way across to New Zealand through Australia. Now, I'm not literally meaning one giant radio dish. It's lots of different sites built across the countries that are then meshed together to form one very powerful, very large radio observatory. What's the point of this giant telescope, though? Well, traditional radio observatories, actually, they use a uh, over a small area, like about a 500 metres or so, use a lot of small dishes, or like the big dish in parks, to uh, collect information about what's going on in the sp- in space via radio readings. So they'll send out and they'll also receive radio re- readings. And this is how we use to find stars, detect what matters in space, detect things on the edge of the universe, and probe the questions about how the universe was formed. Mm-hmm. So a visual observatory actually can, you can look at stars, but radio observatories are ones that are actually more frequently used to find the stars and the planets and observe what's going on, because light is exactly the same electromagnetic radiation type as radio, and radio just travels easier and is easier to measure mechanically and with machines. So will this help us, what's the point of this, using this to help us find, for example, new stars and stuff compared to the others that we could already do? So the bigger 
a space a radio telescope is, the more powerful it is. The larger area you're covering, the more sensitivity you can get. If you think about it in terms of a normal telescope, like an optical one, the bigger your reflector mirror, the, the further magnification and the more detail you can see. That's why there's those really giant mirrors that are like a couple of metres in diameter compared to your little like spyglass telescope, which has got one that's about a couple of centimetres. This is the same principle applied to radio space, uh, radio waves, which means that we have one that's spanning massive amount of differences. And it's called the square kilometre away because that's actually what it's trying to do in terms of physical mesh size. But it covers thousands of kilometres from South Africa all the way to Australia, which means we're basically listening in synchronous, in synchronised way across the world, gathering the signals, meshing them together, and having a telescope that's continents in size as opposed to uh, in a room. I would not be, want to be the person who's having to go through all of that data. Well, it's producing tetrabytes of data a day uh, when it'll be running. So I must say that the project was just announced as the, the finalised winners of the site. And instead of choosing one country, they chose three to work together. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are starting to build it. So it's not complete yet and it won't be complete for quite some time. Um, but there's pilot pro- sites, the uh, precursor sites as they call them, in Australia and South Africa that have already been constructed. The one in South Africa is called CAT. There's another one in Australia, which has got a less entertaining name, but there'll be some more precursors, such as the Meerkat and CAT7, which will be very, very entertaining. Um, and these are all the, basically the small component uh, telescopes, radio telescopes that will form part of this big patchwork. But it'll be producing tetrabytes of data, and it requires really, really fast fiber optic links to the middle of nowhere, because remember, these telescopes have to be in weird locations, and... Uh, you have to lay a lot of fiber optic cable to get all that information back out. So, this... so, you, so you can't just put a high-powered computer right next to one of the telescopes. Well, you can, but then you need to sync up with all the other sites across the country. So you need to have your really crazy fast internet connection to actually link all the sites in the first place. And it stresses some of the power and the importance of uh, uh, high-speed broadband, which is a really, obviously, at the moment, a very important issue in Australia. And this is one of the crazy applications of it. So if you have really distributed, powerful, high-speed broadband, you can do things like the square kilometre array really easily and be the biggest, largest radio telescope in the world producing the cutting-edge research on the history of the universe. So that will be in Australia, scattered across Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. So stay tuned for more from the Square Kilometre Array and the Meerkats involved. So which is better, crinkle cut or straight cut? Well, if you're talking chips, I mean, crinkle cut's obviously better. Yes, and that's true also for the sun. For the sun? Yes. I'll explain, Lauren. In a few months, the sun's polarity is about to... to uh, flip. Yeah, flip. The sun's polarity is about to flip. This doesn't mean that it's going to be the end of the world or anything. <laughs> so the Just sun's not going to, like, flip upside down. No. And then the world flips up, upside down as well, although we wouldn't have any effects of the... Would there be any effects if the world flipped upside down? Yes, there would, because of rotational inertia. Think about that. Right. The, the world is not flipping upside down, Lauren. That's not what's happening. Okay. What is happening? So the magnetic fields of the sun, which is North Pole and South Pole, are mm-hmm. flipping. So they're switching. And that can change without the physical top of the sun being switched with the physical bottom. Is this common? Uh, yes. It's not... It's fairly common. It happens about every 11 years. So 
if most people have lived throughout one... Continuing on. Uh, so what does uh, this have to do with crinkle-cut chips, Jen? Well, one of the side effects of the polari polarity flipping is that the current sheet around the equator of the sun actually becomes more wavy. <laughs> Wait, there's, there's a sheet around the sun that's going to become more wavy? Yes. How does this help us? This is good because then it absorbs more cosmic rays and high-energy particles. So that means the sun absorbs more of those cosmic rays and high-energy particles and they don't come in Earth's direction. And this is the type of stuff that's um, damaged what's it called, probes and um, spaceships before. Yeah, as well as uh, astronauts, because they're outside of the Earth's atmosphere. But, because, but this also affects uh, the frequency and intensity of lightning storms. Wait, uh, as in if there's more particles getting to Earth, there's more lightning storms? Yeah, that's correct. So with less... So, so when the sun's current sheet is all crinkle-cut instead of straight-cut, that means there'll be less cosmic rays, less high-energy particles, and fewer lightning storms that are less intense. I knew there was a reason why I liked crinkle cut chips. <laughs> Zombie comets! Lauren, what are you talking about now? What is this? What do you mean by zombie comets? A team of astronomers from Colombia have found a graveyard of comets. What, on, on Earth? Is this like zombie comets where we're having comets climbing up out of the ground and they're trying to eat other brains of other comets? They're like escape out of the Earth's atmosphere and go back home? <laughs> <laughs> what they've actually found is there's a... they found a third band of comets. Um, in our solar system. So comets what generally hang out in the uh, Cupier belt in mm -hmm. all the Oort cloud. They basically sit at the edge of our solar system and then occasionally they'll come out from the edge into the middle of the solar system. That's why we have their tails. Mm -hmm. And so they've got energy behind them and they go on a, um orbit. orbit. So whereabouts is this belt? The belt is between Mars and Jupiter. And um, it actually has a bunch of what can be seen as dead comets, as in there's no energy behind them and they're just going around in orbit with almost no energy but occasionally a few of these gain energy from the sun and go off on their own orbit which can kind of be counted as zombie comets okay so what what's happening with these comets is generally they things orbit the sun and mm -hmm. part of the solar system they just slowly move around um but and these things are so far out that they're moving like really really slow like thousands of years to do one orbit of the sun Normally what happens with a comet is they get knocked by something or they get energy from the sun and or be the pool or be a radiation it melts them a bit. They'll actually mean they'll move towards the sun and actually come out of their stable orbit and head towards the sun in what's called an elliptical orbit around it. So they'll dive in through all the layers and then head back. So if it's dead, it's been sitting there, it's done its journey, it's come back home and it's just chilling out in space. And then all decide, oh, I'll get some energy, get a bit of a boost, something might hit it, something from the sun might pull it in, it might melt on one side, that causes it to start to move again. And um, then decide to go on another road trip around the universe? Yeah, basically, and that's, that's pretty funny. So how many have they had recently? Have they actually picked up? They've actually picked up a group of 12 different comets called Lazarus. So comets. they've named these comets the Lazarus Comets? Yes. And they've come back from the dead, and then have gone again on these journeys into the middle of the solar system. 
That, that's really cool when you think about comets because we know really ones like Halley's Comet, which is a famous one with a 76-year cycle. And that's pretty stable and it keeps doing that. But it'd be like if Halley Comet's retired and you know, went out to pasture in the Oort cloud and then decided someone, the sun's drawn it back for one more mission <laughs> before retirement. This sounds like some kind of like diehard 7 or 8. Buddy Comet movie instead of a Buddy Comet movie. So this is a, a, the launch of the rocket, what was it, Proton-M rocket? So it's taking off, which is, all seems alright so far, still, still taking off, but it's kind of gone off on a slant, it's wobbling around a bit. It's okay, it can still recover. No, it's gone to the right, it is now horizontal. <laughs> that is not the direction you want. Now it's falling down, it's pointing downwards now. This is not good. Yeah, this doesn't look good. Parts of it have fallen off. Oh, now it's on fire. It is now on fire and it's just crashed into a big fireball on the ground. Yeah, that was Bold. quite interesting. But... <laughs> so I, think I, I think there should be a pun now, but I can't... Uh... So the, uh, Russia has just recently suffered a catastrophic failure um, at one of their launches in Kazakhstan of their Proton-M rocket. So at the moment, Russia is one of the main people launching rockets up into space. Um, now that the United States uh, manned programs, the shuttle, of course, has stopped. But in July, one of the one of the launches, the regular launches of the Proton rockets, went spectacularly wrong at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. It, it crashed, as Jen and Lauren commentated, quite spectacularly. And look at the video, it is online. And it is a really, really worrying failure. The rocket was carrying like 600 tons of highly toxic heptal amyl and kerosene fuel oh, that basically went everywhere. At least it went out in a blaze of glory. It, it did. It did go off in a blaze of glory. Yes, but that blaze of glory was near some houses. Exactly <laughs> in the video. Also, it was giving off a burning fuel of poisonous smoke. <laughs> so that blaze of glory was quite, quite deadly. They actually told people in a 60 mile radius to stay indoors and not go outside. Um, so this is really quite sad. Fortunately, guys, fortunately, the rocket was insured for <laughs> 6 billion rubles, which is about $180 million. So at least Russia will get its money back on that spectacular failure. Or some failure. of it, at least. Um, but it was one of there were three satellites actually sitting aboard that 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 rocket that didn't make it into space. Um, one was a GPS or the Russian version of GPS that didn't make it up, and a couple of other actual uh, uh, scientific studies. It's really funny because Russia's been really trying so hard to launch their own version of GPS called GLONASS. But uh, in 2010, the last time they tried to launch, there was a series of fraud investigations which actually found the entire thing was corrupt and there wasn't really any satellites. <laughs> so they tried again, and uh, it also, this has obviously not worked out well for them as well. So maybe, maybe this satellite, like the Glossnars GPS equivalent, is cursed. That could be what it is. Yeah. Um, but there's, this is the fifth failure of the Proton rocket. So the Proton-M rocket has had five crashes. Um, and after the last one, the last crash in December 2012, they grounded it for five months and restarted again. And you've really got to wonder how keen these guys are on launching this rocket. And who would insure a rocket that keeps crashing? <laughs> 
And it puts into perspective the incredible success of the United States manned space program with the shuttles. And though they've just retired, to think about how successfully they've launched. I mean, there only, was only really one catastrophic failure of the shuttle program, and that was terrible. But if you think about the number of launches they had compared to the safety record of, say, Russia, that's, that's incredible. Um, but fortunately, guys, fear not. The Proton-M rockets are back again launching now. They're about oh, to start... Yes. They're about to start now in August. <laughs> so, if you missed the last spectacular failure, you can probably tune into the next one to see how that goes. And the odds aren't looking good for the poor Proton M rockets. Seventh time lucky? Maybe. Maybe <laughs> seventh time lucky. And you've got to admire the Russians. They just keep trying despite all the setbacks that they face. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. On today's episode, we talk about space, and specifically comet graveyards and zombie comets, Russian space program and its interesting successes and failures, as well as some famous astronomers, radio astronomers, and our square kilometre array, and what happens when the magnetic field flips. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.